The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy today. Prince Wine Store, bringing Melburnians the greatest wine in the world. And Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil. Grown, harvested and first cold-pressed in Northern Victoria. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. everybody, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I am Corey Kirkin and this is episode 290 of our little podcast. As we are each week, we're brought to you by Red Energy, our wonderful friends, partners in crime. Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie own Red Energy today. And of course, part of the power of this podcast is Caroline Wilson. Hello, Carol, how are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good, Corrie. How are you going? Better than you. You've got a cold. And we spent Melbourne Cup Day together. It was such a beautiful day. And we weren't at Flemington with 85,000 people in our shorts. We were on the beach playing Scrabble and you whipped me. You absolutely... We were so engrossed in the game that we embarrassingly realised at five past three that we'd missed the running of the cup. But I was very happy because, of course, I backed Sulcum, the horse-owned by that syndicate, including a lot of Richmond footballers. So I got my money back and more. And you just, for once in your life, hadn't even barely done the form. No, I know it was a very unusual cup day for me, Caro. As you know, I had a bit of a bad uh, punting season last, last spring racing carnival. And so I put a limit on my TAB phone account this year and Derby Day on Saturday, it wasn't such a great day for me sitting at home <laughs> no. watching it on the telly. And I was getting a bit frustrated about this this um, very meagre $25 um, limit that I had put on. So I just decided to let Cup Day go. And, and you know, the, the, the um, seasoned punters uh, would tell you that probably Cup Day at Flemington is not a great punting day anyway. But look, I was very happy playing Scrabble, and um... particularly with your Scrabble form, it was just if only if you'd had money on that, you would have won thousands. I know it would have been great. And then there was a little gathering uh, of, of a few of our friends further down the beach, but I had to go home because I was having coughing fits, which was a bit difficult. So I hope I don't have one today. Caro, we have a really terrific episode lined up. You and I, in a moment, are going to talk about the British Film Festival that is midway through its Melbourne season. And I've been to a couple of films. Um, you have too. We've got a, a full dance card booked and we can't wait to discuss it. And Miles, of course, from Prince Wine Store, one of our other podcast supporters, princewinestore.com.au. Miles will be dropping in to talk to us about picnic wines because we're all fired up about uh, the final day, used to be known as the Queen Elizabeth Stakes Day. I don't know what its new name is now. It probably has a car company on the front of its name, but Saturday at Flemington will be, a, it was always known as a wonderful family day. And um, Miles will be talking about some picnic wines for that. Caro, you- Well, it was Emirates Stakes Day. It was family day. It was final day. And but before we move on, Corrie, I, I should say that um, I did represent you at the um, aforementioned drinks on the beach. And it was very nice. Um, your husband rocked up for a few as well. And it was beautiful. I was swimming and the water was absolutely lovely for the first time. And as we know, um, the Mornington Peninsula water is not exactly warm. Whenever my Sydney relatives come down, they just can't believe how cold it is to swim in Melbourne. But anyway, um, it was a lovely day and nice to um, be in thongs and not um, high heeled shoes. Yeah, well, he told me, my, the husband, the aforementioned husband, told me he was going for a swim and he rocked back two hours later a little bit worse for wear. So, um, so <laughs> that was confusing. So, Caro, let's, um, let's talk about uh, the film, the British Film Festival, known as the Cunard Film Festival. And 
Um, it's a cruise line, I believe. It is a cruise line. Uh, the famous Cunard family, and was it Emerald Cunard who was the, known as the Great Dame of Edwardian England? But uh, I thought opening night, you you were my date. Opening night was really wonderfully put together. I thought we arrived at the Como Cinema in South Yarra to a free glass of fizz that was included in our um, in our ticket upon arrival. And yeah, but you were you were too toffee for that. You wanted a Pinot Noir, so we yeah. ended up having to pay for that. You chose the one drink that we actually had to pay for. You could have had gin, you could have had British cider. You I know, <laughs> I know. I just, I didn't, anyway, so yes, but it was really lovely to, and then we were given also given a little, uh, a little box of very nice sandwich points. So we went into the cinema and... Oh, um, it was a perfect night. And, perfect. and I knew nothing about the film. I didn't know the story. And I was, oh, we were both sobbing by the end, weren't we? It was a really remarkable movie. We'll talk about it in a minute. But I just wanted to congratulate uh, the Cunard British Film Festival. I know that this is actually happening in, um, well, it's certainly happening in Sydney. Uh, as well as Melbourne. And I think actually they've got a program in Brisbane too. But this is a beautifully crafted film festival, I think. And in fact, the director of the film festival addressed us at the opening just before uh, the lights went out and we watched the opening night movie One Life with Sir Anthony Hopkins. More on that in a second. But um, as I've written in my notes here, Caro, the, the film festival that goes for about three or four weeks um, probably looking at it, maybe 30, 30 or 40 films, uh, half a dozen documentaries, really fabulous um, overview of where British cinema is at the moment in the industry. And as I've written here, more knights and dames than a debutante ball at Buckingham Palace. Um, so many, so many <laughs> highlights. The Critic, uh, a movie you and I both want to see starring Sir Ian McKellen. The other night I went um, with another friend and saw uh, Dame Helen Mirren as a, a totally unrecognisable in the role of Gold in My Ear, the Israeli Prime Minister. Sir Anthony Hopkins, as we said, in One Life, and also there was a replay of Remains of the Day, that fabulous movie with Dame Emma Thompson. Yeah, Dame That's Emma a Thompson. wonderful film, Remains of the Day, by the... Um... Movie, it was a book by Ishiguro, wasn't it? Um, yes. Uh, Merchant Ivory, didn't they make it? Did they make yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, um, and it was a, a very young Hugh Grant was in it as well. Yeah, and Dame, Dame Maggie Smith uh, appears in a re-release of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, which I thought was just a, a wonderful turning point movie of the 70s. So Michael Caine and Glenda Jackson's CBE, who sadly died a few weeks ago, um, but they are in a wonderful movie called The Great Escaper. And, of course, Olivia Colman's CBE, I'll call her a dame in waiting. She's in a what looks like a wonderful black comedy called Wicked Little Letters. Anyway, there's a lot. Yeah. There's, a lot there's a lot of stuff there. Um, but let's before we talk about what we are going to see or other things that we have seen, let's talk about One Life. Um, the movie. The movie. Um, Carol, opening night kicked off with the wonderful film starring Sir Anthony Hopkins called One Life, and it's based on the. It's the real life story of an extraordinary, um, gosh, he's really like the Oscar Schindler, I suppose, of British society, Nicholas Winton, who as in, in the, as a, I guess, late 20s, early 30s age, of age, in 1938, he became increasingly concerned about uh, um, the Third Reich and its impact on um, the Jewish communities of Europe. And he became involved with a Czechoslovakian um, organisation that were trying to save Jewish families. And with this group working in Czechoslovakia and also a group of saints who surra he surrounded himself with, including his mother, they managed to save more than 600 children from Czechoslovakia on the eve of the Nazi invasion in 1938. Wasn't it a wonderful performance by Sir Anthony Hopkins? It really was, and you mentioned Helena Bonham Carter, who played his mother, who was brilliant as well. And um, it's it's a great. He's he's a sort of a low key stockbroker living in Maidenhead, with a wife and a, a family. He's getting old, 
and he can't quite come to terms with his life. He's um, he, he he's a bit of a hoarder. He's kept so many documents and forms and stuff, and he's he brings home old typewriters and drives his wife mad. And he's obviously got a fairly you know, um, he, he leads. He's obviously quite wealthy. He's got a lovely house and a swimming pool, and but there's and he's retired and. He's not happy, is he? And this film tells a story of what happens when he decides he wants to do something with all of his archives. And well, you you knew the story. I didn't. Um, it, it involves a British TV show called That's Life, and we'll leave it there. But um, I just couldn't stop crying. It was so moving. It was so lovely. The, the flashbacks to Czechoslovakia, to Prague, are extraordinary. And really, I mean, it's it's sort of a thriller too, isn't it? It's um, it's quite um, you're on the edge of your seat when they're trying to um, save all these children. But anyway, no, it was a great film, and I thought he was getting a bit old in the tooth, a bit long in the tooth, Anthony Hopkins. But he was brilliant. No, he was really good, and Lena Olin plays his wife in the um, in the sort of the contemporary scenes. Um, I thought she was excellent as well. But um, we all know how. We all know how the Second World War in Europe began, and we all know the increasing menace of the Third Reich from the time that Hitler was elected in the early 30s uh, and right through those difficult and traumatic and terrible years. Uh, but even so, even when we know what history is and we know what's about to happen, you and I were sitting there as they were shipping out these children, putting them on trains and sending them across uh, across the borders and, and, and across the channel to safety in England, you and I were in a sweat of anxiety. <laughs> and oh, it, was, it was great to be at a, it was great to be at a cinema. You mentioned you know the lovely champagne and the lovely little sandwiches and the opening and the speeches. but it was great to see so many people in a cinema, which you know yeah. doesn't always happen these days. And you mentioned, um, Olivia Coleman. I mean, the thing about film festivals is that you do see films that sometimes just disappear. And last year, um, Mum and I went and saw Joyride, a beautiful film with Olivia Coleman set in Ireland. I urge you to find it on YouTube or whatever, whatever streaming device or whatever it's on on TV. It was a great film. It completely disappeared. Mothering Sunday did get a bit of a cinematic relief, uh, release, also with Olivia Coleman, a bit more low-key, very slow-moving but beautiful film in its own way. I mean, th that's why um, we love film festivals, I guess. Oh, exactly. And also, you know, the thing with the British film industry too is, is it's always been, um, it, it, it's always had this, um, you know, as I read, it's a quote from Mike Lee, the famous British director, who said the problem with the British film industry is the nervousness and insecurity about and genuflection toward Los Angeles. And of course, he's referring to Hollywood. And I think that's yeah. part of the reason I've always loved it. Not, not in any shape, way or form that the British film industry is the poor cousin. I don't mean that. But it has such a long and rich past. You know, you and I can remember the Ealing comedies, um, the whole, even though as tragic as they were, the Carry On movies and, and all of that British humour that came through via the cinema. Um, and then, and then, of course, television. But there's just such a rich and wonderful history, and there are so many fabulous actors, past and present, and indeed emerging, who have come from a long history and respected history of stagecraft and theatre, that they have made so comfortably, it seems, the transition to the big screen and indeed the little screen, and that's why we have these amazing movies with these 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 actors and directors who have really cut their cut their teeth on um, on the British stage a lot of them doing Shakespeare <laughs> yes and um and and obviously the other um famous and another one another highlight of this year is um the Noel Coward documentary mad about the boy which we're also going to which looks brilliant there's um a couple of musical ones one of them involving Sir Paul McCartney who um I recently saw live which looks brilliant and um and and while we're on film festivals every year I get consumed by guilt for not spending more time at the Melbourne International Film Festival, which our friends Marjorie and Jean have seemed to go to for three or four films a day. They immerse themselves in that. 
And um, I know my son, Ned, he was involved in a film that um, was screened as a short film last year. And um, I know his um, new short film, The Forum, has been accepted into a couple of smaller international film festivals. And it's, it, I've got quite interested in the whole, the way these film festivals are run and how they are organised. And we were saying when we watched the opening of the British one, what a great job that would be to go over to the UK and basically select the films that you're going to show in the British Film Festival in Australia. And ditto the Italian Film Festival that's just finished. And, you know, some of the films did so well there, The Last Night of Amore and Caravaggio's Shadow, that they're still getting um, main screening. You know, they're still on the big screen in cinemas across Melbourne and I think in Sydney as well because they did so well. So it's sort of, it's a life you could really immerse yourself into because so much brilliant stuff is made that you never get seen. You never see it. Absolutely right. For those people who are interested in having a look at the program, britishfilmfestival.com.au is the place to go and just click on the Melbourne Times and tickets. A number of venues around town are hosting movies, including the Astor Theatre, as Carol and I said, the Cinema Como, Brighton Bay Cinema, uh, Baldwin, Westgarth and Pentridge and the Kino Cinemas in Melbourne CBD are all showing different Cunard British Film Festival um, films, which is so exciting. So everybody has um, around Melbourne can have access to this and I highly recommend. Oh, it's just um, we've got we've got a very busy schedule over the next few weeks, Corrie. How we manage to fit in a game of Scrabble, I do not know. Caro, another thing on our uh, on our radar for next week, The Crown series six. Now, for bodies oh. who aren't aware, this is the final series in the most excellent overview of the life and times of Queen Elizabeth II and the production house is releasing the 10 episodes in two lots. So from November 16 next week we will have episodes 1 to 4 will premiere and then from December 14th episodes 5 to 10. So that is our summer season sorted Caro. Well, we know we know how it ends or we know what happens. And a lot of people are saying there's a lot of talkback radio, a lot of articles. I'm not going to watch it. How could they, you know, the, the death, having to watch the death of Diana again. But I'll be really, well, I'll be watching it. And um, I guess it happened. Is it going to be dev- devastating for a royal family already torn apart? You know, I guess the long-term after effects have probably led to this partly led to the split between the two brothers, one who will become king and the other who wrote a very controversial book called Spare, which has seen him estranged from his whole family and living in America. Well, that's part of the reason. It's quite extraordinary to know what happened after. Um, I'm, I'm going to be really interested to listen to the commentary as well as how they handle Diana's death, I must say, and the Queen's response afterwards. Caro, um Dominic West, who is playing Prince Charles for the second season, uh, he came on board last year uh, as Charles is ageing and the marriage is falling apart. And he has told a reporter how the he read Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, earlier this year, and it actually ch- changed his, um, his, his, the way he depicted Prince Charles in the final season. Um, he read, he said that he read Harry's book and really took account of the fact that Harry writes that he, his father never hugged him or was overly emotional to him, particularly around the time of his mother's death. So I gather Dominic West has pulled back a bit. He had assumed that Charles was quite emotional and a big open hearted sort of person and he's pulled back um, from from that, which is I thought was really interesting. The other really interesting thing is, you, have you heard about the, the uproar about the ghost scene? No. No, I've read <laughs> so, nothing. Well, so as we know, uh, there's nothing quite like a ghost to get things going, uh, a.k.a. Uh, Macbeth, a.k.a. Hamlet. There's nothing we love more than a ghost scene. Well, apparently in this series of The Crown, after Diana's death, Diana, played by Elizabeth DeBecky, appears 
to Prince Charles and says to him something along the lines of, you know, I loved you so much. Um, it will be easier for everyone now that I'm gone. Uh, which has apparently set fur flying amongst royal watchers who just think that that's completely uh, unproductive and distressing. And royal watchers say that William is very agitated about that scene and and has said he won't be watching. I don't know whether William has actually said that all the royal watchers are making that up. Who knows? But I do think that's quite interesting that they have brought her back to have one of those sort of imaginary conversations. Look, it definitely, the best part of the crown was the really, really early stuff, which is because, you know, the, the historic stuff is revelationary for us, wasn't it? And um, there was something less disturbing about it because it was so long ago. The new stuff is, well, obviously we can compare the characters more because we knew them better. But anyway, I'll still be watching and I'm sure we'll be discussing it, Corrie. Now, um, is it almost time for a drink or should I say I another drink? <laughs> I think that's a great idea. Let's get Miles and the trolley in. Search princewinestore.com.au, bringing Melburnians the greatest wine in the world. Good morning. How is everyone? And we're not in the studio. Caro's, uh, Caro's in one venue. I'm in another, and you're in another. But well, we actually, I'm in the studio today. today. It was. I thought it was easier. I got it. I get it gets me out of the office for a little bit too. So don't tell the boss. But Miles, what what where you want to be is on a picnic, and that's where you're going to take us today. And as yeah. we sit here, the sun is shining. I know. It's a perfect day for a picnic. Yesterday was a little bit warm, but it would have been a lovely day for a picnic, and would have been even more exciting when the storm hit. And you're going to tell us what we're going to take to drink on this picnic. A couple of picnic wines. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm starting with a, a Chardonnay. Um, probably everyone knows now I'm a bit of a Chardonnay lover. Patrick Sullivan, who is a bit of a modern Australian uh legendary Chardonnay maker. He's he's based in sort of Gippsland and he's known for his single sort of site Chardonnays. Um, this is actually something he came to us uh, with a few weeks ago and it's a, actually a blend of some Mount Gambier fruit and some limestone coast fruit and he's kind of grew up that way as well. So he has a bit of a place in his heart for the sort of region down through Kunawara there. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a blend of the two regions, and he wanted to make something. You know, his other Chardonnays are they're, they're not they're not cheap, but they are absolutely fantastic. Search them out. But he wanted to make something that was a bit more sort of punter friendly and accessible. And he's done this, and this is an absolute knockout Chardonnay. It's just fantastic, lovely kind of like ripe nectarine and sort of peach yellow fruit, little sort of kiss of like hazelnut oak. It's got this lovely sort of thread of minerality to it that the sort of limestone coast volcanic soils really sort of un underpin that fruit nicely with this fresh acidity and this fresh kind of minerality. Lovely sort of detailing in this wine, particularly for a wine at $28 a bottle. I think you'd be really hard pressed to find that sort of quality, that kind of depth and complexity from you know a wine at this price in general. But certainly Chardonnay, and and as far as like legend, you know, it just makes fantastic modern Australian Chardonnay. So this is an absolute ripper, and it's going to go with you know I think a lot of things. It's not a huge Chardonnay, um, and it's got a little bit of oak. But you know, if you're taking like smoked salmon or like cold chicken or something like that, this is just going to be absolutely spot on. That sounds great. What's its um, official title, Miles? It's just Patrick Sullivan Chardonnay. Um, most of his is other... there a year on it? Uh, twenty twenty three. So it's it's quite young, but um, it's it's just it's just an absolute cracker. It sounds fabulous, and that and that region around Mount Gambier, the limestone coast, it's such a fabulous wine area, isn't it? Yeah, it's been, and it's probably a little bit sort of un, under underrated in a lot of ways. Um, so it's nice to sort of see, you know, him sort of putting it forward. And what a what a great wine! It's just we were, I think we're pouring it next door at Bellotta too. So um, if you want to try it there, pop in as well. And what's the second Post? one have for us, Miles? Twenty eight for the for the Patrick for the Patrick Sullivan Chardonnay. So Thank yeah, you. No problem. And the other one is uh, Legado Moncoya Ganacha. It's a Spanish Ganacha. I really wanted to do a Grenache slash Ganacha. You know, I think it just kind of ticks the boat, it ticks the boxes as far as, 
you know, juicy, fresh, crunchy, still a little bit of body. The nice thing about Spanish Garnacha, it has a little bit, little bit of bite to it. It's got a little bit of, you know, it's got some tannin in there. And that's cut through this really lovely kind of like glass A sort of cherry fruit, this lovely fresh kind of orange peel sort of lift, violet kind of lift on the nose. It's super juicy, but it's super crunchy. It's, you know, like, I guess like a, a much more, a, 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 I guess a bit of a serious Pinot, if you want to sort of look at it that way, for, as far as Spain is concerned, um, and it's thirty-two dollars, and it's also screw cap. Both of these are screw caps. That was my other sort of uh, factor when I was looking for these wines. I wanted to make sure that everything came in screw cap because you know you don't want to be carrying around bottle openers at picnics. You just want to crack that stuff and get going. I hit that. I hit that hurdle yesterday, <laughs> Corey. But there was a nice gentleman who was very happy happy to use my corkscrew. You'll be happy to hear. Oh, always, they're always <laughs> good to have just in case. So, Miles, you say the Spanish Ganacha mm. is a, like a serious Pinot, uh, and you're meaning in in the depth of flavour there, yeah. I think just particularly Spanish Grenache here in Australia can be quite not all of it, but a, a lot of it, and particularly sort of the the more sort of value stuff can be pretty just kind of like juicy, easy, soft kind of plush. Um, but certainly when you see Grenache and Ganache in sort of in Europe, it's a little bit more serious. There's a little bit more tannin. There's a little bit more, as I say, a little bit more sort of bite to it. They come across a little bit more less of that sort of just juicy, easy fruit, which they still have that beautiful, lovely, sweet kind of red fruit, but they look a bit, little bit more serious because they've got a little bit more structure behind them. So I guess if you want to kind of compare it, you know, like a more serious Pinot, say from Burgundy or somewhere like that, also has that. And so I think there's some elements in there that sort of might work. So if you kind of like a more serious Pinot um, or Pinot in general, you're probably going to like this too. Sounds, Sounds delicious. It's delicious. So that's $32 for the Spanish Ganacha and $28 for the Patrick Sullivan Chardonnay. Yep. Very diverse. We've covered both hemispheres. Yeah. And how Miles, we... what did you, Miles, how did you spend uh, Melbourne Cup? Uh, I spent it in my workshop. <laughs> so <laughs> exciting for me. Is that maybe a not wine room people. or is that a real workshop? <laughs> no, I have a real workshop that I go to. So. Um, so I got out of the heat and, uh, yeah, built some stuff. Wow. That's mm. impressive. Yeah. With um, Did you have a little, you know, glass by your side or that was after, after no, the workday? No, I, I have, um, dangerous equipment that I use in my workshop, table saws and things like that. So I'm very, uh, very, uh, I make a point of not to be drinking during the, during the day in particular, but particularly when I'm using <laughs> those types of machines, I want to keep all my fingers if I can. So uh, I stay away. Non-alcoholic beer is always, always good. Oh, that is that's um. It sounds like you know, isn't it funny? Just a day, some people cup days, just a day off. You didn't even listen to the race. I didn't. I, I had to ask someone this morning who won, <laughs> and I still don't know. Oh, Miles. <laughs> and we're and we're doing this podcast, Corey, through SEN Studios. Gee. <laughs> but Miles, um, how can potties access these two fabulous wines? So jump online at uh, princewinestore.com.au. Um, put them into your cart, and uh, when you get to the uh, 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 section to pay, you can put in the code MEWS and you'll get 10% off uh, the wines. Fabulous. Thank you for helping us with our picnic choices. Miles Thompson from princewinestore.com.au. Powered by Snowy Hydra, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy today. BSF. Book, screen, food. And as we just heard, BSF and Caro, you have a book. Well, Corrie, I'm back in the back catalogue. In judging the Walkley Award Book Awards, Caro, which has been fascinating, but there have been a lot of non-fiction books to go through. So maybe I'll do a little reporter summary of that next week or the week after. But yes, I'm so sorry. I've been leaving all of this heavy lifting to you. So what have you what have you gone and read? And all and Corrie, all I've been doing is reading books that you've already reviewed. So thank you for Wifedom and thank you for for small things like these by Claire Keegan. I need, but you've reviewed them. So I'm going to move on to, I'm going to go back to my back catalogue again. And um, yesterday after we spoke and we agreed that I would do that, I um, found Life Class by one of my favourite authors, Pat Barker. Now this won the 1990. 
25 Booker Prize. And Pat Barker is back in a subject that she has excelled in, as you know, and that is World War One. And um, I suppose the, it, it, her books are about the of her World War One books, and the most famous of all, I guess, was Regeneration, and that became a trilogy, the Regeneration trilogy. Life Class also became a trilogy, and this wonderful author who was born in the 1940s in Northern England, she was actually born to a single mother who um, got blind at a, a Wren's night, I think, and found herself pregnant. Um, Pat Barker doesn't know who her mother is, so um, Pat Barker brought up her daughter, the mother brought up Pat as her sister, and so they lived with the grandparents. It's an extraordinary story. You're probably across all of this because I think you put me onto Pat Barker all those years ago. But life class starts just um, on the eve of World War One. Um, it's got everything, Corrie. It's got the weekend house party. Um, it begins with um, a life class, quite literally, a group of young, an English woman and two young men who are learning how to paint at a life class and that theme of art travel takes us over to Belgium with the two young men who were part of this life class one of them Paul a northern Englander who um comes from um a lower class and who is a I think a scholarship student and trying to better himself he finds himself um volunteering for the Red Cross during World War One in Belgium, and Kit, who's a very talented painter, more upper class, finds himself over there too. Eleanor, the sort of love interest, gorgeous and fascinating young woman, writes to becomes embroiled with them both, really. It's a bit of a love triangle, but it's a lot more. And she is sort of, I, I suppose you could say, spends a lot of early World War One inveigled in the Bloomsbury set back in the UK, back in London. It's a wonderful story about, like all Pat Barker's books, is sexual tension, social reformation, class, and this sort of question about is there a place for art in war and vice versa. Um, it, it's I just love this book. I think it's the most beautiful, moving story. Of course, the Regeneration Trilogy was a, really covered the um, psychology and the psychiatry that followed, I mean, the world... There was the the term and um that was once known as shell shock, and she tells the regeneration stories through uh, a wonderful wartime doctor and of course a real time character, the wartime poet Robert Graves. But um, this one life class is probably one of my favourites. She of course also wrote the Silence of the Girls, which was um a reenactment of Troy and the that all of that drama, but told through the eyes of the women including um, King Minus's young widowed wife, um, childless wife who becomes involved. But I would recommend Pat Barker to anyone and I would recommend Life Class to anyone. I'm not, I think you've read it. I'm sure you've read it. I haven't read Life Class, um, Cara. I did the Regeneration Trilogy. And can I just say to anybody who hasn't uh, ever read it and who might be interested in war fiction, there are, I reckon, there are very few writers who capture with such empathy and sensitivity and in, and innate understanding of the human condition at wartime than Pat Barker. Um, it, look, it probably has a bit to do with her, uh, her the, you know, she was born uh, in 1943, I think it was, or 1944, and uh, Northern England, um, I think probably her family background, everybody in England, let's face it, was affected by World War II and the austere conditions that followed and certainly the spectre of world war one um, and the generations of men who were lost and i just think she just she just she just tackles her subjects with such sensitivity i love her i think she's great and um well, she's a fascinating it. character because you know as a product of a single mother who was passed off as a sister I think the grandparents ran a fish and chip business in some northern English town. They lost everything. They were really poor. But she got a scholarship to a grammar school. And when she was quite young, met her husband, who was married to another woman in a pub. He was um, a neurologist, I think, and a zoology professor, David Barker, 20 years older than her. He was married. He left his wife for Pat. They had two children, one of whom the daughter also became an author. But just a, you know, what a story. 
of a woman yeah. who became a you know Booker Prize winning champion and has written so many wonderful books. Yeah, she's great. I I would I actually you've inspired me to do a bit of a Pat Barker uh review i might get read a couple of her books over christmas um i think that in summer i think that would be a great thing to do um that's a lovely review life class by pat barker i can't wait to read it i'll have to borrow it carol onto screen and you and i have been to the movies and i and i did want to just um i, I didn't probably do enough of a rah-rah earlier on helen mirren's extraordinary performances gold in my ear in golda which will be coming for general release at the end of the year. But everybody, please, uh, particularly at this difficult time and anxious time in Middle East history, um, please uh, consider going to see Golda. It is just an outstanding film with an amazing performance. But you and I have also been binging a bit the same show, the same program, SBS. Oh, I blame you. I blame you for the fact that I've put the books aside the last two days. I am absolutely obsessed with this very chilly drama that you've put me on to. Called Trapped. And I'm going to blame my friends Jane and Peter because they, 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 that JD recommended this one on the golf course. And, um, and I texted her the other night to say, why do I feel so cold when I, when I watch this movie <laughs> set in a, set in a fishing village? Um, uh, it's actually, it's real, it, it's set in, it, it's, it's filmed, most of it is filmed in the real life fishing village north of Ryajevic called Ziglofiodor. I think that's how you pronounce it. Apologies for my Icelandic. And um, it is very cold and it is very isolated. And particularly at the time that this series is set, which is uh, in the new year, I think February, March or something. So it's particularly yeah, it's early February. It's February. Oh, yeah. Particularly wild and woolly, and um, and that's where this. Uh, are, are there ten parts to this series? I don't know. I'm up to number nine. I can't bear to even look at how many are in the series because I don't want it to end. But I am told that there are three series. They started filming this. Uh, this program in 2015. So I'm um, very, and it's one of the most expensive productions that Iceland has ever undertaken. But boy, is it a fabulous show. Um, series one, it starts with a human torso is discovered by a fisherman off the coast of this small Icelandic town. And the local policeman, Andre, who's a big, burly, bearded chap, and his two police colleagues, the sidekicks, they set up the investigation. Um, the call comes through pretty quickly from head office in Ryajevic. Uh, no, you don't. You guys are amateurs. We're going to send the big gun detectives. They'll be on the next helicopter, so don't get involved. But a severe snowstorm and an avalanche puts a momentary halt on that idea. And so for a few days, Andre and his team are in charge and the drama slowly unfolds. Most boy, oh boy, does it unfold. The, the body unfolds. disappears. His the, the 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 main suspect escapes from prison and then he's i mean there it is just it's it's like what do they say it's um one of the characters says i feel like i'm living in a recurring nightmare well it is and because they're trapped in more ways than one i mean obviously the the avalanche is a metaphor for for the way they are all trapped in their their small town community politics and as we discover criminal behaviour. Um, corruption, yeah. human trafficking, oh, political corruption, yeah. Chinese. Mafia, and, and he's all, and Mafia from Lithuania, the whole box and dice. But Caro, uh, and I'm not even going to, but people won't know the actor and I will not even attempt to say his name, but he, the actor who plays Andre is terrific, the cop, and of course, as always, has a complicated backstory of his own. But I love the no-nonsense sidekick, um, Enrica, and she's brilliant and, and her yeah rather hapless kind of goofy askia who for me just reminds me I, I said to pete the other night he's iceland police forces version of kenny on vera <laughs> <laughs> kenny would not have stuffed up the way he did in about episode always, three cory always seems to be but, saying oh, you know i'll check i'll check um you know i'll check with the files or i'll check with the officer or you know, make a call or I don't know anyway. But, but there's also there's a there's an element of rear window in it too, as you know. And there's the other the other thing that well obviously like as you say, the, the main character Andre has a backstory, but he's obviously been the big town 
um, capital city cop and something's gone horribly wrong, which has taken him to this small town where yes. he's also dealing with a broken marriage and bringing up two girls. It's it's pretty complex, but it's oh, it's just addictive. Well, one of one of the um, one of the reviews that I read, Caro, said that the show very quietly and very slowly takes you through all of this action and wasn't that like Andre, the detective hero himself, slowly, methodically working his way through the various subplots and the community dramas and not to mention his own personal life. And you're absolutely right. I won't give anything away because it unfolds, but he has been a, a top dog in Ryajivik and has been involved in a botched investigation. So you'll learn more about that as it comes. And he's come to this small town where his now ex-wife and two and two girls are. So there's there's a lot of that happening. But I think that slow um, movement and detail uh, is is really relevant to this show. It's what makes it such a fabulous uh, detective drama, because with all these strands, we we feel that we're not being shortchanged on any of them. Don't you think? Oh, no, and I think you're right. He holds it all together. He's such a compelling character. So get on to SBS On Demand, everyone. And um, I've, just done a, I've just done a really brilliant um, Welsh drama, host drama called Rough Cut, which is really good too. So you can do Rough Cut first and then you can really deep dive into, um, well, I suppose it's not Scandi noir because it's even... It's even colder. We're in Iceland. <laughs> Corey, great recommendation, Trapped on SBS. Now, I'm going to um, take us through a very quick and, well, it's not that simple, but it's a, it's a beautiful recipe for food. And I want to thank Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold pressed in northern Victoria. Thanks to Cobram Estate, Corey, I have got a brilliant salad dressing recipe that you can make and keep in your fridge for at least a week. It can go with any salad, but it's best on just garden leaves. Although I um, whipped up what I felt was a very nice um, potato salad the other day and I used it on that. Um, do you want me to take you through it? Oh, please do. So it's from, from um, Selector, the Life, Food and Wine magazine. And um, it's a recipe, I think, by um, Joe Barrett. And it is thanks to our friend and great podcaster friend, Sal Howe, who made it for me a few weeks ago. It takes about 15 minutes to make. You've got, it involves cooking. White wine vinegar, 200 mils, 200 mils of white wine as well, 300 mils of extra virgin Cobram Estate olive oil, another 300 mils of olive oil. So you've got a lot here a tablespoon of seeded mustard, a teaspoon of Dijon mustard, a bay leaf, five peppercorns, flakes, salt and pepper to season, three shallots peeled and sliced, and obviously the salad leaves and herbs for your salad. Corrie, you basically simmer in a small pot the white wine, the vinegar, the shallot, the bay leaf, and the peppercorns until reduced by half. You strain, reduce the liquid, you strain the reduced liquid and set it aside. That's as complicated as it gets. Then you whisk in the mustards, the, then you drizzle in the olive oils, um, season with salt and pepper. You know, I said a week in the fridge. You can actually keep it for months, according to the recipe. It is absolutely yeah. beautiful. Um, that is mustard vinaigrette. It is delicious. I suggest you make it. Sal Howe even suggested it would be a good um, Christmas present. Make it and give it away as Christmas presents. Because you know how nice it is just to have a to have a really nice jar of salad dressing just sitting in your pantry or your fridge. Yeah, fa fabulous. Oh, that's a that is a great idea. So long as there are no nothing goes off in the in the um in the bottle that you give. But no, that's a great it, idea. I, I often this... give I often give pesto. And actually yesterday I gave you shortbreads that I made because I forgot to put the timer on and they're a bit burnt. So, you know, apologies again for that. Oh, they look delicious. I'll be having mine with a cup of tea after this. But Courtney Jane has the recipe on the show notes. It's absolutely wonderful. And we'll move right along, Corrie, because you are grumpy. Um, yeah, look, Caro, this is an amazing fact dressed up as a grumpy, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I, and, I'm, and, I, and I stress that I'm self-diagnosing and I stress also that I have no medical qualifications whatsoever, ever, other than 
I am the mother of three kids, so that always has a, has a bit of weight in our household. But why is it in recent years that I am catching more colds and ear infections in summer than in winter? Indeed, this winter I did not have a cold. And then why each summer are they hitting me so hard? So, and I'm and I'm fed up with it. Like I've had this thing now for four days. I've been testing. I've now done four COVID tests, one for each day almost. And because uh, at first I did think it was COVID, Carol, because I had a I had a fever and my my uh, it came with the sore throat and the fever, and I thought, oh, this is COVID. And there's a bit of an outbreak in Melbourne at the moment, as we all know. Um, no, 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 no COVID, no whatever, but I did want to, um, just to be safe, um, I did and not give you this dreaded lurgy, I did want to um, record remotely today. But um, it turns out, Caro, that... You'll notice, uh, you'll notice I hosted Scrabble Outdoors, Corrie. Yeah, <laughs> you avoided me like the plague. Um, but, in, but, but you know that there, that there, and this is all Google, so again, I'm stressing, although there are doctors on Google saying this, but um, in cold, in winter, the colds that we catch are usually triggered by the most common viral infections in, human, in humans, which is a group of germs called rhinoviruses. And in summer, the summer colds are caused by different viruses. And these particular, these are called enteroviruses, and they can trigger other different symptoms to the regular cough and cold. Um, running nose, sore throat, that's part of it. But you can also have stomach problems. You can have nausea, uh, you can have vomiting. And most summer colds, they say, and these are all my symptoms, running nose, coughing, congestion, headaches, pressure on the sinuses, muscle aching, sneezing. But I think, Caro, what's making me feel even worse is the fact that, you know, the hay fever, which I probably had for a month, and I think a lot of people in Melbourne at this time of year with the pollens, and also the plane trees and all of the other trees are budding. It's just, it's just, it's like the perfect storm. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is about a spring or summer cold is, you know, at least if you've got a cold in winter, yes, it's conducive to snuggling up in bed with a hot water bottle and just checking out of life for a day or two, which you and I aren't very good at doing, but you can't, or even an afternoon. But when it's really beautiful weather, it just makes you even more miserable, I reckon. Well, my mother used to say exactly that, and she used to say the worst cold you can get is a summer cold, and um, and and agree, and and you get no sympathy from anybody, and it's so incredibly true. But anyway, you have been sympathetic, and I'm glad I've had a whinge. So that was my grumpy, and um, uh, yeah, and I think we should probably just <laughs> skip on to six quick questions. Which unlikely twosome caused you to scratch your head this week? Well, Carol, I don't know what you think, but. I just keep wondering what what on earth was behind the the visit to Israel last week by former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison and former British Prime Minister I, Boris Johnson. Did you? I think couldn't that? agree more. I was. What was that about? Well, given given their status, um, they were always going to attract a certain amount of media attention in their own respective countries, as well as in Israel, um, where the Netanyahu government is really keen to harness international support. But what's happening in Gaza, I mean, it requires such high level, deeply skilled diplomacy, a la Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, who's amazing, I think. Um, it requires enormous tact and extraordinary empathy, not the qualities that I would have immediately put high on the list for either Scott Morrison or Boris Johnson. Um, Scott Morrison wrote an opinion piece in The Australian that his visit was aimed at demonstrating solidarity with Australia, Australian Jewish community and Israel. And he did say in the piece, I no longer speak for Australia, nor do I pretend to. But I just wonder, did the government leaders of, of England and of Britain and Australia know about this vi visit? If yes, did they provide writing instructions or indeed warnings? to Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison. I mean, I just find it incredible. As Malcolm Turnbull said, um, these are two guys with plenty of time. What are they doing there? I mean, it, I just... I think the government, I think the government must have known. I mean, I, I wouldn't imagine you could thought that as former Prime Minister and, you know, that, that holds a certain and comes with certain life privileges. I think um, the payback for that is you probably wouldn't go off on such a controversial international mission without letting the government know that that is what you were doing. So I'm sure that they did know, but is it a I agree. Is it, is it a taxpayer-funded 
um, trip, do we know? No idea. But the, maybe that's you get a certain amount of travel when you're um, a former Prime Minister. A question without notice, did the film Golda, watching it in a time of, well, in a time of war, I guess, the war in Gaza, did it make it even more poignant and did it make you think about the past and the effect it's had on the future? Oh, yes. Oh, Caro, it was, it's all, it, it's set, they take a chapter, uh, a bit like the Queen, remember the Queen with Helen Mirren again, um, focused on that particular episode in the Queen's reign of Diana, around the time of Diana's death. This focuses on Golda Meir's handling of the Yom Kippur War in, yeah. uh, and and it's remarkable, um, it, remarkable kind of similarities in uh, world responses. Um, Henry Kissinger being the US Secretary of State flying in and trying to resolve the issue. Israel's um, determination to, uh, to to push back and against this invasion and all of the the kind of the strands of um, what really brought the what really brought the state of Israel to, to, to life, you know, and, and the history. I mean, Golda Meir was deeply affected by what happened in 1948 um, when the state of Israel was proclaimed. It's just, it is, it is just, we just sat there, my friend Jane and I sat there just totally mesmerised and incredibly sad about the connection with what's happening in 2023. Amazing. My father brought up Moshe um, Diane last night over a cup, a cup night drink. And um, yeah, it, it, it is... It is just a, a terrible, terrible history. Now, Corrie, you have a question yes, for me. Yes, my, my question to you, Caro, is what made you angry this week, apart from losing oh. to me, Rebel? Oh, no, well, this is um, obviously deeper and um, pretty profound, but I, I actually have watched this the rise and fall of this insidious evil individual, Andrew Tate, and I actually watched Four Corners the other night. Um, the Man Who Groomed the World, which is a, a BBC documentary. Um, Matt Shea is a journalist who did it. Oh, Corrie, it is just, I mean, as we know, Andrew Tate, that evil misogynist and just loathsome individual, um, he and his brother are currently um, under house arrest. I think they're not in jail anymore in Romania, charged on multiple counts of rape, human trafficking. But this um, Four Corners documentary unveiled the war room, their war room and all its horrors and what happened to women and the men who ran the war room. Um, obviously, that makes me angry, but what really made me just, it was just bewildering is how he became such an international sensation and how he managed to get so many men behind him. I just, it makes me feel so sad and angry about the world. I just can't tell you. Um, it was a very upsetting documentary. Um, I almost, I found it really hard to watch, I've got to say. And, I'm with um, you. I, it, I, I was very emotional watching it. It was deeply, deeply disturbing. I tell you what, it was a relief to go to Iceland and um, watch headless torsos and, you know, Lithuanian mafia. Anyway, out, on a cheerier subject, out of 10, how do you score the new Beatles song? Oh, yeah. God, I, lo I, love, I love it, as you would probably think. I mean, the lyrics, I'd give a 5 out of 10. It's, um, it, it, it's hard to think. I mean, this was a demo, or this was a, a playing around episode of John Lennon in 1977. He recorded it on an old-fashioned cassette tape, and as we know, in the mid-'90s, Yoko gave it to the, the then three Beatles were alive and said, look, if you can do anything with it. George, who was alive then, was very keen to to work with it, but they couldn't separate Lennon's voice and the piano. And as much as they tried to bring it to life, and George certainly um, recorded some uh, some guitar to go with it, um, they just couldn't separate out the voice and, um, and, and John's piano playing until Peter Jackson came along with his amazing AI um, technology. And when he was making the documentary get back and he was able to separate the sound, the sounds. So we have John's voice in purity. Now, I don't think he would be very happy with <laughs> with those, you know, I know it's true, it's all because of you. And if I make it through, it's all because of you. That's not John Lennon, but 
I think he would be so incredibly thrilled that this, because he, that he was such an inventor, they all were, and they loved to experiment. So five out of 10 for the lyrics, the music, eight out of 10. I love the way it starts in the minor key. I love the way it changes from a, a, a it changes to a three, four beat at the end of it. And then the mix and recording, Carol, you've got to give it 10 out of 10. Giles Martin, son of the famous George Martin, longtime producer of the Beatles. He's obviously the keeper of the production flame. He's organized this whole episode and I just think it ticks the box in terms of nostalgia, total 10 out of 10. This is just a wonderful celebration of the Beatles um, career and their lives, isn't it? And friendship. Oh yeah, no, it's a great story and the technology that's allowed it to happen is amazing. Um, Carol, what surprised you this week? Oh dear, clearly I've been watching a lot of television. <laughs> but um, I watched the Australian story on Libby Gore, aka Elle McFeast, who burst onto the Melbourne and Sydney comedian in the 1980s through the show Live and Sweaty, hosted by Andrew Denton. What a phenomenon that was. And as, um, you know, you know, two early women pioneers of footy reporting that you and I sort of were. I've always followed Libby Gore's story and I have kept up with her. I know she was on um, the original advisory committee, the AFLW, into the national landscape. Um, and so I've spoken to her a bit over the years and I was disappointed when she missed out on a couple of gigs on ABC radio after getting back into radio. But what surprised me was forgotten just how that Chopper Reed interview for her nighttime talk show that was um, launched um, a few years after Live and Sweetie started, how that completely destroyed her career and how, as she said, she was cancelled before cancelling became a thing. As we know, Chopper, Mark Chopper Reed got drunk in the green room, poured all over her in the interview, was embarrassing. She handled it as best she could. People felt that at, on the night, the production team felt that it had been a success, albeit controversial and maybe offending a few people. Well, the next day there was outrage. Her show never really recovered. She was forced to apologise and she just sort of disappeared from the media landscape after being, you know, a rising star who, you know, the songs, she, the footy songs she wrote, The Only Brunette at the Brownlow, The Ode to Edna Danaher, she was great, Libby Gore, and Elle McFeast was great, and she's, she's sort of clearly now in control of her life and back and has been back working for a long time. I mean, it didn't sort of destroy her completely, but I was just really surprised and had forgotten how angry one particular debate. I remember interviewing her about it at the time and her explanation, oh, look, I mean, not quite cutting it, but she was making the best of it, and... Um, it was really just appalling what happened to her, really. Yeah, well, look, she ha she did have a very successful um, career on ABC Radio here in Melbourne. Um, but, uh, you know, I caught up with her because I'm doing, a, a, I've done a couple of things on Disrupt Radio, which is just a brilliant radio station, by the way. And Libby's doing the, hosting the morning program. Top class job, like really, really, gosh, she's a good interviewer. Because she says, she asks the questions that you'd always like to ask, doesn't she? Yeah, oh no, I think she's a real talent. Now, Corrie, we're back on very British-themed episode today. Speaking of John Lennon, which cover version this week caused you to throw, oh, you didn't really throw your shoe at the telly. No, I didn't. No, I, I wanted to. Um, Carol, I don't even know what the ad was, actually. It was during their Channel 9's Melbourne Cup Spring Racing Carnival uh, coverage on Saturday. So I was doing Channel 10. Yeah, Channel 10. 10. Sorry, Channel 10. What did I say? Channel 9. My apologies. Channel 10. Um, and it was good coverage, terrific. Don't have a problem with that at all. I was doing the ironing. I had the um, I had the little TAB phone account with its minimal um, spend, <laughs> with my limit in place. Look, I know what and, you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. I think I think it is an ad for sport. Um, yes, and, um, instant karma. Primarily, primarily women's soccer got a bit of a run. Instant karma, which is a re one of John. Lennon's post the Beatles, one of his better songs, he and Yoko did it, always an incredible film clip if you ever get to watch it. Um, but Instant Karma is a really good song. And it's been turned into a trivial ad. It's a song about peace, harmony, and, um, and you know, how as much as we all try and resist it, you know, um, karma, you know, karma, is, karma happens and 
it, peace and peace and living with yourself is good for you and all positive messages and it's been turned into an ad for I don't even know what it was I was so shocked I didn't take note of the product did you um well well I was watching all the sporting highlights and um I must say I think it's I didn't mind it being linked I didn't mind it being linked to sport because it was very, and particularly the Matildas who we all just absolutely adore um I you know I didn't mind it I mean we all shine on you know it's just they're wonderful words and they actually go it sort of works with sport Corey I didn't mind it so much oh okay well we'll, we'll agree to we'll agree to disagree with that one but um I just think it's a yeah, yet another example of a really wonderful rock song that you and I grew up with that's just been turned into a bit of an elevator music thing. Well, I'm going to talk about, um, by way of um, referring to the new dress code at Flemington, which this year in the members, the VRC allowed shorts to be worn, as I'm sure you're aware of, Corrie, about fashion at Flemington. We were too young to really remember the famous dress that Jean Shrimpton wore with those wonderful two-tone shoes, um, the mini dress that had everyone absolutely agog and forced me or prompted me to do a bit of a deeper investigation into dress codes at the races. It's absolutely fascinating. Now, um, obviously, the Melbourne Cup is a bit of a free-for-all in the general um, admission area, and you're pretty much allowed to wear anything, and everyone gets dressed up in um, novelty attire, etc., etc. But, um, for example, um, Paki Barbie, which is a completely different situation, in the, they virtually don't have a dress code at all, which I wasn't really aware of. In Sydney, it's a little bit slacker at Randwick than it is at Flemington. Um, in fact, they make it clear that overseas visitors are welcome to wear formal the formal dress of their nation or their country, and they, they won't be um, prevented from doing so. And they're a little bit slacker too when it comes to men and ties, etc. But Royal Ascot is just extraordinary. Every different enclosure has a different dress code. In the royal enclosure, you're not even allowed to wear a fascinator. Did you know oh. that? Will you be happy about that? I'd be. <laughs> well, good taste, I say. The Queen Anne enclosure, no strapless, no off the shoulder and no whole tunics. The village enclosure, you can actually wear spaghetti straps, but you can't in the Queen Anne enclosure. They almost get out the tape measure for the thickness of the strap that you're allowed to wear in the Queen Anne. No novelty attire in any of those um, enclosures. The Royal Enclosure clearly is far more, um, is far stricter. The no fascinator rule is slackened a bit if you are 17 or under. You can wear a fascinator, but if you're over 17, your hat has to be solid. If you know Solid. what I mean, and do you know do you know what a bardo neckline is? A bardo neckline? No. Yeah, I think I think it's it's off the shoulder. It's something that doesn't involve straps. Well, they're banned at every part. They're banned in every part of Royal Ascot, except I think they're a bit slacker um, when it comes to the um, the old village enclosure. <laughs> which actually um, allows you to wear a lot more. But if you want to dress more informally, go to Churchill Downs for the um, Kentucky Derby because they're a lot more free and easy. But, um, yes, I, I was surprised yesterday. I didn't see as many shorts as I thought I'd see. Did you? Were you well, you didn't get to watch much of the fashion. When I got home, I watched a bit of it on the telly and I watched a bit of it in the morning when the um, broadcast started. But I was fascinated and I'm... Um, I tried to talk to my friend Michael, my VRC committeeman friend Michael Ramston, to actually talk about the process whereby um, whereby they allowed shorts to be worn this year. But I guess it's sort of sensible. Well, Caro, that's just um, that, that's so interesting that there are those dress codes. You know how I feel about the particularly the members' enclosure at Flemington. Since we've had um, marquees, triple story marquees that now are nightclubs. I think the, the dress standards have gone a bit to the dogs. But I did one thing I did notice was an awful lot of hair headbands or, or tiara kind of activity happening on the head. And that certainly wouldn't go down, it sounds like, in some of those places. 
Well, not at Royal Ascot and certainly not in the Royal Enclosure. It's so sad that the old um, car boot picnic is pretty much gone from the nursery now at Flemington and a giant nightclub. No membership required. Don't have an issue with that. But the whole, um, and we talked to Miles about picnic wines today, um, picnics in Flemington are no longer such a thing, or certainly not the thing they once were, and I think that's really sad. Oh, yeah, I agree. Good, good, amazing facts there, Caro. And um, a terrific conversation. How diverse we've gone, we have gone from, uh, from, from the British Film Festival and swanning around on opening night with Sir Anthony Hopkins to um, the Melbourne Cup. It's been a great episode. And Just don't you. wear a Bardo neckline, Corrie, not if you're in the UK. I will not be wearing a Bardo ne neckline. I don't think I ever have or I ever would, but I know, but you know, I know, I know there are some beautiful off-the-shoulder sort of dresses, uh, cocktail frocks that you could wear, um, not in the royal enclosure. Hey, um, Karen, well, the members' enclosure at Flemington certainly allow spaghetti straps, and they allow off-the-shoulders. So it, um, and Roy, and Ascot even has rules about um, see-through material being passed off as a sleeve. Anyway, I'll leave you with that. That's so interesting. Well, thanks everybody for your company. Thank you, Carol. And of course, thank you to Miss Courtney Jane, our terrific producer. And Carol, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. We love hearing from you, so join us on Facebook or Instagram at Don't Shoot Pod or email us via feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. And if you'd like to support the show, the best way to do it is to tell a friend to listen. Your word of mouth recommendations are just so greatly appreciated. And of course, you can support our wonderful sponsors who make the podcast possible. Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers three times. Maybe it's time you switch to red. Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold pressed in northern Victoria and Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide. Visit princewinestore.com.au.